welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. We're going to read the Bible together today. Um, We're going to be reading from Acts chapter 4, which if you picked up a Bible from the foyer, you'll find it on page 885. It'll also be on the screen behind me as well. So Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 21. The priests and the captives of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of the men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the cornerstone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to the mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach it all the n- uh, in all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them, because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who had miraculously been healed was over 40 years old. Awesome. Well, uh, we're going to finish off this series this morning as we look at that passage. But let's pray together first and we'll get into this. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we can gather together this morning. Thank you, God, that you are a God of grace and a God of mercy and a God of love. Lord, we pray that as we look at your word that you would challenge us that you would shape us and change us. Lord, we pray that we would walk out different people than the ones who walked in because we have met with the living God. We pray this in his name. Amen. 
This week, um, I came across an article on uh, my Facebook feed about a guy who in 2009 was doing a thesis into cryptocurrency, and after discovering Bitcoin, thought that he would buy 5,000 Bitcoin for $27. In 2013, he forgot about it, actually, for the next four years, but then in 2013, came across a news article talking about the rise of Bitcoin, decided he would log in, check it out, and his 5,000 Bitcoin for $27 had risen to $980,000. In today's term, that's $73 million, if you follow kind of the, the trends of Bitcoin and what it's worth today. And, and so this article was celebrating all that this guy was kind of doing in 2009. Now, I don't know if this is your experience, but for me, when I read articles like this, I wonder what I was doing in 2009, right? Like, I'm like, I, I mean, I know what I was doing. I started the year working at Woolworths, and then I quit that job. That's about all I did in 2009. <laughs> that was my year back then, and I wonder how I didn't discover Bitcoin, how somehow I didn't buy low, sell high, you know, get, make some good investments in my life. But I was grateful for this article because it pointed out why I didn't and why we didn't get on Bitcoin. I mean, maybe you did, but the majority of us didn't, and, and it was talking about why we didn't. It was interviewing this guy. It was talking about his experience of Bitcoin. And what's interesting is he even realized at the time that what he was doing was ridiculous. In fact, this is what he said. He said, I buy a lot of technical little things that I've never had any time to use. You know, like you, you might experience that. You might be someone that buys lots of stuff online. You know that experience where you look at it, you've never used it, but you paid lots of money for it. But he said this of Bitcoin, this was the worst of all. In fact, I thought I was buying fake money. The reason none of us bought Bitcoin is because we all thought it was a joke. And even the people who did buy it thought it was a joke. This guy, he, he thought it was ridiculous. He was actually buying fake money with real money. Now, as I was reading this article, uh, I was grateful that, you know, it made me, it brought me out of the sorrows of reflecting on my 2009. I was grateful for that. But I also came to, or was reminded of this realization it, it's not a new realization, it's not something new and, you know, that no one's ever discovered before, but this realization that unless you grasp how valuable something is, unless you grasp how beneficial it is, unless you grasp the impact that something can have, you're not going to do anything with it. Whether it's a currency, a movement, a decision, if we don't grasp the importance of something, the value of something, the benefit of something, then we'll never act on it. Now, this matters today as we gather together as the church, not because we're going to spend half an hour looking at cryptocurrencies. You might want to do that. Go home and do that. I don't care. But today, it matters for us because we gather as the church. We gather as, as, as the movement of God. We gather as the people who take God's vision, who have the vision of God for our world. And this whole time, I mean, we've been in this series for nine weeks. We've been looking at this, this movement of God, this vision of God, and we've been talking about this invitation for us to join it. We've been looking at, you know, if you've been with us, we've been looking at how God's vision for the world is to make and grow disciples of all nations. We've seen how this is our vision as a church here at Southside, that we want to make and grow disciples. We've talked about, you know, the core commitments in that, the vision we have for our community. We've seen how this movement began and this vision began to play out. We saw this in the last two weeks, the power of God and the proof of the resurrection. But as we gather today at the end of our series... The question we want to ask is in light of all this, in light of the movement of God, in light of the invitation, the question we want to ask this morning is why would we join? Why would I get involved in this? 
Why would I join? What's the benefits? What's the impact? What's the value of what God is doing here in this church and here in this movement of the church in the world? Well, what we're going to see as we open up our Bibles today is we're going to see God speaks into this. We had it read out for us before, but we see this beginning in chapter 4 of Acts. It's uh, on the screen as well. It says this, The priests and the captains of the, uh, the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John. Because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. So why would we join? Why would I get involved in what God is doing in this church? Well, what we're going to see in this passage is three reasons. And the first is here in these verses. The first reason we would join is because the movement of God, the vision of God played out in the church. This thing is unstoppable. The movement of God, the first reason is because this is the unstoppable movement of God. Now, we got a glimpse of that, didn't we, in those verses? But there's a little bit more going on here in the context. There's a little bit more weight added to it than just those verses. See, we've missed a bunch of the story. Last week, we looked at Acts 1 and 2. We saw how, again, proof of the resurrection, power of God, the church begins and explodes onto the scene. After that, in chapter 2, if we were to read and pick it up again, we see the church gathers together, united in one accord. Chapter 3 rolls around. In chapter 3, we see this lame beggar who's at the temple gates. Peter and John walk by, and they, he asks them to, for some money. He says, can I, you know, can I have some money? They say, we don't have any money, but what we do have we'll give to you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. He does, Peter preaches, and then we enter into the story. And what we see in this narrative is that as we pick up what's going on here, the religious leaders of the day are agitated by what they see. They're frustrated by this experience of what is unfolding. They're frustrated by the fact that a guy just got healed and the message of Jesus is being preached. Now, why are they frustrated? I mean, isn't it the religious leader's job to point us to God and what God is doing? Well, what we see in this, these religious leaders is they want, they want to stop this movement. They want to stop the movement of God. You know, they've already tried once before. Remember, these guys were key, played key roles in the killing of Jesus. They've tried before to stop the movement of Jesus. And so now, a couple months after Jesus' death, to hear that his message is still going out, that would be agitating. And so they see that, they're frustrated, they're disturbed by it, is the language that Luke uses. They're disturbed by what they see. So what do they do? Well, they try and do the same thing. Their strategy, again, is get rid of the leadership. You know, they did it before with Jesus, now they go again. And this time, they try with Peter and John. Let's put Peter and John in jail, and the movement will fade and die. Now, their strategy is not too bad, right? Like, it's a pretty good strategy if you think about it. You know, if we think in organizations or movements around the world, we get the fact that if you get rid of leadership, things generally struggle after that. You know, pick up any book about, you know, leadership, really. I mean, there's hundreds of them in bookshop, uh, bookshops, there's hundreds of those, and they talk about this idea that good leadership produces a good organization. Bad leadership produces a bad organization. If you want to stop something from growing, get rid of the leadership. The saying is, you know, cut the head off the snake, and the snake will die. Now, I am convinced that's a good principle in life, because I have a deep fear of snakes. But when it comes to organizations, movements, leadership, that's the saying, get rid of the leadership, and the thing will fail. So this is their strategy. Let's get rid of the leadership. They get Peter and John. 
they put them in jail, and what happens? I mean, if we're expecting the thing to fade and disappear, if we're expecting, you know, to read, Peter and John got put into jail, and then everyone ran in fear for their lives because they didn't want to get jailed as well, we get the exact opposite. Because what we see is they jail Peter and John, and what happens? Many who heard the message that day believed. So the number of men who grew to about, uh, the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Cut the head off the snake, and the snake grows. Right? That's what happens here. They get rid of the leadership, and the thing explodes again in growth. How does that happen? It's because God has backed this. God is behind this. This is the unstoppable movement of God. Nothing will stop the movement of God in this world. It's unstoppable. Kill the leader, he'll rise from the dead and appear to people over 40 days. Jail the key leaders in the early disciples and the thing will continue to grow. This is the unstoppable movement of God. Now, I love that this is the environment which the church was born into. You know, sometimes people might argue that the reason the church exists is simply because people were longing for another religious experience. Judaism was getting a bit stale and, you know, people were just gathering around really desiring something to just pop up and Christianity popped up and that's why it began. But but what we see is a fair bit different to that. I mean, hostility is here. The environment which this begins is hostile. Enemies are trying to stop this movement of God. And yet we see it's unstoppable. It continues. It grows despite cutting leadership off. It grows despite growing hostility. See, this thing going on in the church, the movement of God, this is not another internet fad. You know, like those things that are here today and gone tomorrow. You know, we talked a a couple weeks about uh, Kony 2012, here and then gone. Bitcoin one day will fade, right, and disappear, and we'll probably never remember it again. You know, we know internet fads come and go, the ice bucket challenge, planking, bottle flipping, right, all of these things. We're here for a moment and then gone. This is not what's going on in the church. This thing began in hostility, yet they cut the leadership off, and yet it continued to grow because this is the unstoppable movement of God. It doesn't matter if it was back then or now. It doesn't matter if whole nations reject it. It doesn't matter if here in Australia in 2019, if things appear to get worse before they get better. The church is the unstoppable movement of God, that God has said, I'm backing this. I'm for this. And it will continue. In fact, Jesus once said of the church, even the gates of hell will not prevail against this. So why would we join the movement? Well, the first thing we see is because it's the unstoppable movement of God. God is behind it. God is for it. This thing will not be stopped. What's the second reason? Well, we see this as we keep reading. The second reason we would join this movement is because it brings the exclusive message of salvation. So we keep reading. Uh, The numbers grow. And then verse 5 and 6, we see the leaders, these religious leaders, gather together. And then in verse 7, they bring Peter and John in and begin to question them. And they ask them this question, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now, just notice quickly here what question they're asking. They're not asking for more proof. Right? They're not not asking for more proof. That's a question we would ask today today. You know, as Australians, we want more proof. We want more evidence. We live in this world where we want, you know, we want evidence. Pics or it didn't happen. Show me the video or I, don't, I won't believe it. Like, that's our world that we live in. We want proof. But the enemies of this movement aren't asking for proof. 
The proof is standing in front of them. This guy who was lame, who was probably paralyzed for 40 years, is standing in front of them. They've got proof. Their question's different. Their question's how. How did you do this? How did this guy who couldn't walk now walk? And what does Peter reply with? Well, he starts in verse 9, and it's kind of passive-aggressive, actually, (laughs) because he starts and says, are we seriously being jailed because of kindness? We did something nice, and he put us in jail, but, you know, he's not really getting into that, because he wants them to see how this man was healed, and he points them in verse 10 to this. He says, know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before before you healed. How did you heal this man, Peter, the boldness of him again? I mean, I love the the way that he's been transformed from this coward hiding in a room to now boldly sharing to these people who killed Jesus and saying, you know who healed him? Jesus. Again, I think there's a sense of passive aggression here. Remember Jesus? I remember the guy you killed? You spat at? You publicly humiliated? Remember that guy? That's how this man was healed. But see, the point here for Peter, he doesn't want to stop on this. He knows that the movement of God is not just about how to have physical health. It's not just how paralyzed men can walk. The point of this movement is to point people to the saving name of Jesus, not just the physical healing name of Jesus. And so he keeps going and he says, this Jesus was the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And then in verse 12 says this, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The point of the healing was to point people to the saving message of Jesus. And Peter says it, it's exclusive. He says this movement brings with with it the exclusive claims of Jesus that there is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. Salvation is found in no one else. If you want to come, if you want to find life, if you want to receive eternal life, the only way, Peter says, is through the name of Jesus. Now, it's here that we see the exclusive claims of the Bible. It's here we see the exclusive claims of Jesus. There is no other way. There's no other way to heaven. There's no other way to God. There's no other way to life. It's only through Jesus. This is saying not all roads lead to Rome. This is saying it doesn't, not all paths, whatever spirituality you take, will eventually get you to God. No, the message of the Bible is exclusive. There's no other name. The only name that can save is the name of Jesus. Now, I get that this is controversial, right? In our world that we live in, we live in an age where truth is relative. Your truth is yours. My truth is mine. You be you and I'll do me. I can't, we don't want to make exclusive claims of truth in our day and age. And what's interesting is this type of feeling has crept into different Christian circles. Famous Christian leaders and famous Christians who have called themselves Christians have so been influenced by this idea that their teaching begins to change. So one of the pastors, there's a guy called Rob Bell, he's a guy who did this. If you have been watching closely, Oprah Winfrey was someone who did this. She claimed to be a Christian. And we love Oprah, right? How good is she? She's so loving and listening. She's caring and all that. But if you listen closely to her teaching, 
it's changed over the years to the point now where her teaching is it actually doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you believe in. It doesn't matter what God you believe in. Eventually, one day, you'll get to the God of the universe, the God of love. But see, it doesn't matter how much we love that idea or want to like that idea. The Bible is explicit. There's only one name. There's no other name that can save. It does actually matter the name you choose to follow. Because the name of Buddha and the name of Muhammad and the name of whatever other God you want to follow, that name won't save. The only name that's going to save is the name of Jesus. Salvation is found in no one else. No other name under heaven will save us from sin. No other name under heaven will save us from death. No other name will give us the hope of eternal life with God forever. It's only the name of Jesus. It's exclusive. This movement comes with it, the exclusive message of Jesus. Now, as you hear this, what's your like, gut reaction to it? What, like, what feelings does this provoke or thoughts does this provoke? Because I know that when we think about something being exclusive, that generally kind of stand up a little bit to that. Generally, we don't, we don't, our gut reaction to that is we don't really like it because if something's exclusive, normally it means that someone's excluded. We don't want people to be excluded. We want everyone to be included. We want everyone to have a chance. But see, what's interesting is that while the message of the Bible is exclusive, there is no other name that can save. It's unbelievably inclusive. And it's inclusive in the sense that the offer of salvation is for everyone. And we see this in the fact that Peter is giving this offer to these particular people. Right? Notice who he's speaking to here. It's the religious leaders who killed Jesus and then jailed him and John for doing something nice, and yet he's giving them the offer of salvation? See, the message of the Bible is exclusive, but it doesn't exclude anyone. The offer is to everyone that if you want to come to Jesus, if you want to trust in Jesus, then you can find life. It doesn't matter what your past is like. It doesn't matter what your journey's like. It doesn't matter if you're here today and you've got things that you're ashamed of. It doesn't matter what your journey's been like. It doesn't matter if you killed Jesus and jailed his followers. The offer of salvation is here. If you want life, it's found in Jesus. So the message is exclusive. There is no other name, but it excludes no one. It's given to everyone. The offer is to all, whether we kill Jesus or not. Peter gives this offer to these religious leaders here. Unbelievable, the fact that he would say this. And so what we see here, why would we join this movement? Well, it brings with it the exclusive message of Jesus. It is an exclusive movement. There is no other name. But all of us can join. All of us can trust in Jesus and find life. So firstly, the first reason we join, unstoppable movement of God. Second reason we join, it brings the exclusive message of Jesus. What's the third? Well, we see this as we keep reading. Verse 13, we see this. It goes on. When they saw, that's the religious leaders, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. The third reason we would join this movement is because there is a role for everyone. There is a role for ordinary people like us. Now, we've been on this journey with the disciples. You know, we've talked about how the disciples in the last few weeks, the disciples aren't exactly this group of people that if you could, if you could go around the world and get your 12 best people together, that you would end up with the disciples. That's not them. 
they're, they're really quite ordinary. You know, we've seen in the last couple of weeks, we've seen um, they're known for literally, Jesus literally appears in front of them and some of them doubt. You know, they're known for staring off into the sky. That's what we saw last week. Peter, one of them, I mean, the one speaking here, literally gets called Satan by Jesus because he thinks about things of man and not things of God. These disciples are ordinary people. Now, the religious leaders see this, right? They witness this, the fact that they are ordinary, unschooled, and the word, they are astonished by what they see. They're astonished by it. And, and what we see here is the fact that there is a role for all of us in this movement because God uses ordinary people. God uses ordinary people. It doesn't take a theological degree. It doesn't take years of training, and, and those things are good. But God is not contingent on those things to work. No, God works through ordinary people who simply do what He called us to do. When ordinary people lean into God, the call that He has on their life, and are dependent on Him, this is the environment in which God works. And we see this with the disciples. The religious leaders are astonished by it. They're like, who are these guys? They're just ordinary guys. But this is where God works. And we see this as we keep moving on. You see, they might lack in training. They might lack in, in theological education. But where they lack, they gain in obedience. And we see this as we keep going. See, verse 14 and 15, the, the leaders gather together and try and figure out what's going on. Verse 16, they're not sure because everyone in Jerusalem knew about the miracle. Everyone saw it. You know, they can't deny it. They can't just, you know, act like it didn't happen because everyone saw it. So verse 17, they come up with this plan to threaten them and warn them not to speak in this name to, sp to stop this thing from spreading. Verse 18, they gather together, they threaten them. And then verse 19, we see Peter and John's response. They say this, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? Who should we listen to at this point? God or you leaders? You judge as for us. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. So verse 21, they threaten them again, but the people are praising God. And then Luke wraps it up for us and says at the end in 22, the man who was healed was over 40 years. What do we see going on here? It's just God using ordinary people. When ordinary people lean into the call of God, when they are dependent on God and obedient to His call, here is where God works. It's this environment in which God works powerfully through ordinary people. Now, I love this because we're ordinary, right? Like, I'm ordinary. You are ordinary. Like, I know that maybe, you know, this morning you didn't want to come to church to be told you're ordinary, but we are, right? In fact, if we think about, I don't know, maybe this is something, maybe it's just me that, that does this, but I often think about the fact that Around the world today, there are 7.7 .7 billion people who exist in our world. I mean, roughly. That's a lot of people. You know, I don't know if you ever consider this, but I often think about where I fit in 7.7 .7 billion people, and I want to recognize that I'm ordinary in that world. You know, there are lots of people in our world who are smarter than me. There are lots of people who are funnier than me. Lots of people who are better looking than me. Lots of people who are stronger than me. Right, in fact, I think the majority of the world is stronger than me. I'm convinced there's a four-year-old out there that could beat me in a fight. Like, just convinced by it. 
Like so many people in our world, there's just so many people better than me. In fact, I'm also convinced that sometimes I think about this, like there's probably a doppelganger out there. You know, the, the, that's the word to describe someone who looks like you. I'm convinced there's just someone who looks like me who's better at everything than me. I mean, I'm worried that Elizabeth might find him one day. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I don't, it keeps me up sometimes, but not much. But, you know, when we think about the world though, right, the population, 7.7 billion people. There is so many people who are better than us at everything. I'm ordinary. We are ordinary. But what we see here is that God works through the ordinary. When ordinary people lean into the call of God, dependent on Him, and just do what He says and speak about what we know, here is where God works. So why would we join this movement? Number one, it's the unstoppable movement of God. Number two, it brings the exclusive message of salvation. Number three, there is a role for us. Now, as we wrap up this passage and this series, as we think about this, we hope it's been clear over the last nine weeks that our efforts here in this series haven't simply been to give you more information. You know, that might have happened, more information about what God is doing in this world, what God's vision, the power God has, the, the impact that God has, the, the commitments that God wants of us. We hope that it has, you know, you might have gotten information, but the point of this series hasn't just been to give you inf information. It's been to give you an invitation. Not so that you will simply know about what God is doing, but that we would join the movement, that we would take up this invitation. And so as we finish this passage and as we finish this series, the question is, what does this invitation look like? What does it look like for us to do this? To, to think about all the stuff we've looked at. Well, I think when we think about it, I think there's two steps that we need to make. And the invitation is to make both of those steps. The first step is to simply come and trust in Jesus. We would love to give you an invitation today to put your trust in Jesus. Hear the Bible's message. There's no other name that can save. Salvation is found only in Jesus. He is the only one who can save us from sin and death. He's the only one who can give us the hope of eternal life. And we'd love to give you the invitation to put your trust in Jesus. Maybe you've never done this before. Or maybe you have ages ago. We'd love to put, give this invitation to you where inwardly you can commit to saying, you know what, I do trust in Him. I do believe in Him. Now, if that's you here today, then make sure you talk to someone. Or in fact, we'd love to invite you to the Life Course that's happening for the next two weeks. In fact, next week at the Life Course, we're looking at what is a Christian? What does it mean to trust in Jesus? Join us at that. That's the first step, though, that we make, to put our trust in Jesus. But, but the second step is this. It's an invitation to simply join the movement. It's an invitation to do what God has called us to do. It's an invitation to get up and go, make disciples, recognizing that we are ordinary people. But it's here when ordinary people do what God's called us to do that He works. Now, it's interesting, I was reading a book about this this week. Um, it's a really short book online that you can find by John Piper about a guy called David Brainerd. Um, it literally would take you maybe 15, 20 minutes to read. We'll try and post it on social media this afternoon. Uh, David Brainard is his name. And David Brainard is the epitome of weakness and flaws. To, to kind of give you a picture into this guy's life, he was born into a family where for 200 years they struggled with early deaths. His parents both died young, and then his brothers 
His uh, one brother died at 32. One brother died at 23. His sister died at 34. And then David Brainard died at 29 years old. His last few months of his life, he died of tuberculosis. And his last few months of his life, he was in his deathbed. David Brainard became a Christian at 21. So he only had eight years, eight ordinary years. But for four of them, he decided that he would go on mission. He lived in the 18th century in America, and he decided that he would go on mission to the native Indians. And in his life, he wrote this journal, and in the journal, he writes about all the things that he struggled with. This is a man who struggled with pretty much everything. He struggled with um, sickness. His whole life, he struggled with severe sickness. He would often wake up in the middle of the night with uh, fevers, sweats, and chills, coughing up blood. He suffered with depression. He described it for him that he actually began with the struggle of depression at 11 years old. So out of the 29 years that he had, 18 of those, he struggled with depression. So dark were his days that he described it, saying he didn't feel like he deserved to even be around, let alone the fact that God, that he had this relationship with God. He didn't feel like he deserved that relationship. He described his depression as a kind of death. He also struggled with loneliness. He felt that he couldn't confide in anyone, that no one would listen to him, that he couldn't be honest with people. He struggled to get along with people. He wanted to get married, but he never did. And his whole life, he struggled with loneliness. He struggled with his outlook on the world. He struggled to get up each morning. He struggled with the people that he went on mission to. He struggled to love them. He writes that he mourns because he didn't love them more. He struggled with the call on his life. He struggled to keep going. He wanted to give up. But as you read about David Brainerd, he recognized that God was moving. He recognized that this movement of God was unstoppable and that it brings with it the exclusive message of Jesus. And so he was driven by that fact. And despite all the things that he struggled with and suffered with, he pushed on. He labored. He strived until he could labor no more. And he went on mission to these native Indians. Now, as I reflect, I mean, as you read about this guy, you notice, you see that this guy is a guy who struggled with weakness, struggled with flaws. But what really got me was Piper's quote as he's wrapping it up. Piper says this when he's reflecting on David Brainard. He says, There are a few Indians, perhaps several hundreds, who owe their everlasting life to the direct love and ministry of David Brainard. Who can describe the value of one soul transferred from the kingdom of darkness and from the weeping and gnashing of teeth to the kingdom of God's dear Son, if we live 29 years, as David Brainard did, or if we live 99 years, would not any hardships be worth the saving of one person from the eternal, eternal torments of hell for the everlasting enjoyment of the glory of God? See how he's wrapping everything that we've been talking about up in this quote, but then he says this. He said, Brainard's life is a vivid, powerful testimony to the truth that God can and does use weak, sick, 
discouraged, beat down, lonely, struggling saints who cry to Him day and night to accomplish amazing things for His glory. The invitation here is to join the movement of God, but not because you're an extraordinary genius who won't struggle with anything. No, we are ordinary. But it's when ordinary people are dependent on God and obedient to His call to make and grow disciples. It's this environment in which God works. It's what God worked for David Brainerd. 29 years and what a legacy that he left. See, God's vision for the world is that more and more people would come to know Jesus. God's vision for the world is that His followers would make disciples of all nations. God's vision for this church is that we would make disciples of all nations. But God's vision for you is that you would make and grow disciples of all nations. That you as an ordinary person would lean in, dependent on God, obedient to God as an ordinary person, knowing that it's here when we do this that God works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the saving message of Jesus. We are so grateful that there is no other name in heaven which can save. We're thankful for the exclusive message of Jesus that has been given to us, that is for everyone. God, we pray as we think about what we do with this message of Jesus, as we pray, as we think about what we do with the vision, your vision for this world and the way that it plays out in our church and in churches around Australia, we pray, Lord, that we would go as ordinary people, that we would go knowing that it's not our skills, it's not our genius, it's not us that's the point, but that when we as ordinary people point people to Jesus, when we speak about what we know, it's here that you work. God, we pray that you would work in us and through us for your glory and the good of so many people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.